the National Archives podcast series, Edwardian Roller Skating, presented by Sean Creighton. Okay, on the 24th of January 1911, 91-year-old Mary Ann Ray, who lived in Alphonsus Road in Clapham, died a few days after being knocked down by two boys on roller skates on the pavement near Clapham Common Electric Train Station. The local police informed the Home Office that the coroner's jury returned a verdict of accidental death, adding a rider to the effect that it was a great pity that the roller skating nuisance in the streets could not be put a stop to. Now, roller skating in the streets, particularly by children and teenagers, causing injuries as a result of collisions prompted several local authorities to lobby for a change in the law and to adopt bylaws to ban street skating. Home Secretary Winston Churchill refused to agree to bring in a general law on the grounds that this would prevent children who could not afford the costs of indoor rinking from enjoying the activity. Here at National Archives, a thick file contains the details of the Home Office's involvement in the issue, which can be supplemented by local authority archives and local newspapers. In early 1910, an initiative was taken by Woolwich Council to ask the LCC to make a bylaw to stop the nuisance and asked other local authorities for support. In April, Battersea Borough Council, for example, was one that agreed to support the request. But in September, the London County Council rejected it on the grounds, quote, it doesn't appear that the nuisance is sufficiently serious to warrant a bylaw on the subject at present. Middlesbrough Corporation included a clause empowering it to make bylaws for regulating skating in a general bill about its powers considered by Parliament in 1910-11. Following advice from the Home Office that there were other powers available, the Bill's Committee deleted the clause. When Weymouth provisionally agreed to adopt a bylaw to ban skating on the Esplanade, the Home Office noted several serious accidents have occurred through persons colliding. The decision of Stoke Newington to pass a bylaw was noted by the Home Office official as, quote, reasonable enough, but as the proposal is a new one and if allowed will establish a precedent. In early November, the divisional acting superintendent told the Home Office, I believe the bylaw would be most useful in putting an end to the offence in this borough and also benefit other districts, as if convictions were recorded in the local newspapers, the effect generally would be to stop the objectionable pastime. Woolwich finally passed its own bylaw in February 1912. Once it had notified the Home Office, uh, the latter informed the Commissioner of Metropolitan Police and the information was included in police orders in June. Now, what had been going on to worry local authorities enough to consider banning roller skating in the street? Well, there was a surge of popularity for the leisure pursuit from 1908 in what is called the Edwardian roller skating boom, which lasted until 1912. Now let me summarise the main features of the boom. 
Rinking, as roller skating was called in the Victorian and Edwardian period, was largely an indoor and seasonal recreation and sport. Some rinks were purpose-built, often in metal which made them very hot and noisy, while others took over existing buildings like a disused tram shed in Tooting or hired space in large complexes like the, the Crumble Hall here in, in Putney. Actual numbers of companies registered to promote rinks is difficult to ascertain. According to the magazine, Rink Owner and Manager, 171 companies were formed in the second half of 1909, while Rinking and Rinks recorded the formation of 239 up to the end of November, with a nominal share capital of just over £2 million. National Archives closed company registration files list 13 skating rink companies being formed in 1908, 193 in 1909 and 21 in 1910. But there are also other companies which ran rinks on their premises, such as Walton Hall Limited from late 1908 and the 63-year-old Lincoln Corn Exchange. Many seaside towns had outdoor rinks such as Blackpool. Worthing Piers Company's increased profits in 1909 were significantly due to starting roller skating. Clacton Palace, a varieties and skating rink, planned to add an outdoor rink for 1,000 skaters. The boom was so popular that rink promoters established themselves in competition with each other in, in the same town. Birmingham had six rinks, as well as one in nearby Erdington. Bournemouth had four. Some companies developed chains of rinks. In 1910, there are known to have been at least 526 rinks operating in Britain in the various types of establishment. The industry employed thousands of people in the rinks and in supply industries. There were four specialist magazines between 1909 and 1911. The World of Wheels and Roller Skating Records started as a monthly in May 1909, later going fortnightly and then weekly. Rinking and Rinks started in October and Rinking World in December. The rink owner and manager, first published in March 1910, merged with the record uh, that October. The first issue of Rinking and Rinks regarded its own launch as an indication that rinking was no passing recreation, but warned, and I quote, Today, the rinking situation is a delicate one. The spoil sports and killjoys are abroad in the land. It behoves resident managers and rink proprietors to tread cautiously lest they fall. Allied with the Puritans will be those hit by the competition of the rinks. Truly, rinking will have enemies. We wish roller skating to continue as we believe it to be at present a clean, healthy sport, a clean, healthy business. The range of activities that could be carried out on skates was clearly one of the activities' appeals, including roller pushball, roller football, and very popular fancy dress carnivals. Local papers and the specialist magazines reported the names of prize winners. Keen skaters formed clubs. Hockey clubs included women's teams. Amateur leagues developed, including the London Roller Racing League. 
Popular interest around the country, however, in roller skating began to wane from 1911. The reasons for this are not entirely clear. There was an element of short-lived craze, an example of public fickleness. There was an element of over-provision and incompetent management. Developments in cinema may also have had an effect of diverting public interest. The specialist magazines all closed by the end of 1911. Many companies went bust, others shut their doors, and the buildings were converted into other uses, including as picture houses. And in the case of the rink at Vardens Road, near Clapham Junction, into an aircraft factory. Now, let's have a quick look at the development of roller skating up to 1908. The first was a two-wheeled version designed for ice skaters to practice when there was no ice. This painting by Thomas Gainsborough is of the inventor, John Joseph Merlin, a Belgian who settled in London about 1760, making harpsichord and piano instruments. He demonstrated his first pair of skates at a masquerade party at Carlisle House in Soho Square. Unfortunately, as he hadn't uh, invented a braking mechanism, he crashed into the glass mirror at the end of the enormous room he had to skate through. From the 1780s, he ran a mechanical museum. His design remained the basis for roller skates for several decades. In 1818, we find skates being used in a ballet in Berlin. In 1819, we see the invention of a three-wheeled version, and in 1824, a five-wheel, one-line version. In 1857, rinks opened in the Floral Hall in Covent Garden and in the Strand, and in 1859, the Woodward skate was invented in London with four vulcanised rubber wheels. Roller skating began to attract a mass popularity when a four-wheeled skate with movable axles was designed in 1863 by James Leonard Plimpton in the United States and skating took off again in Britain in the 1870s. The early rinks had concrete floors with some experimentation with asphalt. One participant recalled, the floor was asphalt and exceedingly hard. The skates were apparently possessed of demons of diverse intentions and in the contest between them, my head and other portions of my anatomy suffered severely. A keen advocate was Brighton Reverend James Pycroft, who wrote a treatise on roller skating in 1877, praising it for its healthy exercise and particularly for allowing ladies to exercise, to use his words, their latent energies. Jay Craven, who invested in rinking in the 1870s in Birkenhead, asked the Inland Revenue whether he could offset his rinking business losses against the profits on his house and land agency work. The local office reported to London that he had bought the concessions of the right to use Plimpton skates. In 1877, he had resold one of these profitably for nearly £1,200. He hadn't sold the others and the patent expired in 1879. He also carried on running at a loss a skating rink in Birkenhead, which had closed. The files here show that London inland revenue officials refused to agree to the requested offset. 
The rink may have been the rock ferry which was taken over by the Salvation Army in April 1882 with their newspaper The War Cry commenting that it was taking over disused rinks all over the country. The next major technical logical improvement was the steel ball bearing skate by American Levant Richardson in 1884 which allowed skates to roll with ease, reducing friction, increasing speed with minimum effort and enabling skating shoes to be made lighter. In 1898 he started the Richardson Ball Bearing and Skate Company of Chicago. A large rink with a marble floor at Olympia was opened in 1890 and an even larger one was at the St George's Hall roller skating rink with a pure maple wood floor in Wandsworth High Street from 1892 to 4 managed by Arthur Alexander Buckhurst. He had been manufacturing skates at Holloway in London from the mid-1880s and was a leading speed skater. The 1890s also saw interest in road skating. Streatham News reported that road skates with pneumatic rims could reach speeds of between 15 and 20 miles an hour. A London road skating club, a strong membership, and during the previous two years, over 4,000 pairs of skates had been sold from one depot alone. Now, although interest in roller skating declined again in Britain, a number of rinks remained for the enthusiasts and provided the infrastructure needed on which to build the next wave of public interest. In the United States, rinking continued to be popular. Uh, there, there is one picture of, uh, and story of women on roller skates who used to go around shooting their Winchester rifles. And in the early 1900s, the suffragettes picketed the White House on skates and organized all skatathons for the cause. George Gershwin's introduction to jazz, played by Jim Europe and his band at the Baron Wilkins Club, was as a result of his roller skating in Harlem about 1905. The revival of interest in Britain in 1908 seems to have had several complementary drivers. Skating at Crystal Palace under the management of Albert Bridge, promotion by Pemberton Walker Willard and by American salesmen and skaters, and a growing interest in everything wheeled, bicycles, cars and aeroplanes. Albert Thomas Christopher Bridge was a champion skater in South Africa before coming to Britain in 1904 and being appointed as manager of the rink operating in the North Nave at the Crystal Palace. According to Rinking and Rinks, the directors told him that, as in their opinion, roller skating was dying out, this was a last effort but it turned out to be a brilliant success. He recognized that the mere round and round skating would not keep up the interest in the sport. So he encouraged figure skating, introduced roller football, pushball and hockey. He also persuaded the palace management to sponsor skating competitions. Now, the National Skating Association was not happy about this. Founded in 1879 to promote and control ice skating, it had taken roller skating under its wing from 1893, used the St George's Hall rink, but with the collapse of the 1890s boom had closed its roller department in 1899. Albert persuaded the association to revive the department and start sponsoring speed and figure championships again. 
the palace became its headquarters for roller skating and several of its championships were run there between 1906 and 1909. Albert also took a leading role in the development of rink hockey, helping to establish the Amateur Rink Hockey Association, acting as its honorary secretary and official referee until he left Crystal Palace at the end of the 1907-08 season. He then worked in Europe. On his return to England, he became general manager on a three-year contract for the Erdington Rink near Birmingham. Local shareholders included several calling themselves gentlemen, a factor, a commercial traveller, a manufacturer, a patent agent, a nurse, and several members of the Pilkington family of cycle manufacturers whose firm became Tube Investments. At the grand opening, he was congratulated for the completeness of the arrangements and the comfort and enjoyment of all present. One of his trick specialties was to balance on a gigantic single roller half his height. He worked closely with the NSA, hosting skating proficiency tests for them and established the Midland Rink Hockey League. The second individual who played an important role in stimulating the revival was Pemberton Walker, Walter Willard, who set up Rinking Limited to use Empress Hall in Earl's Court as a skating venue. The company expanded fast and became involved in at least 20 rinks as far afield as Bristol, Lincoln, Manchester and Newport. The key Americans helping to re-stimulate interest were Chester Park Crawford and Frederick Arthur Wilkins, operating out of Liverpool, acting as agents to sell American skates and other equipment in Britain and Europe. They were directors of the American Roller Rink Company. Separate companies were then set up for each rink, so in addition to those in Britain, there are ones registered here or papers survive here at National Archives for Paris, Antwerp, Bordeaux, Marseille, Nice, Cologne, Copenhagen and Frankfurt. American performers also came over. Harley Davidson, nothing to do with the motorbike, finished his show by leaping backwards over seven chairs, turning a complete circle in the air. When Crawford and Wilkins put up £400 prize money for the NSA's World Professional one mile championship competition in February 1909 at Olympia, Harley won. His brother John came fourth and fellow American Ali Moore second out of five entrants. John was a co-founder of the magazine The World on Wheels and as he used the M Express skate, its manufacturers featured him in its adverts. The manager of that firm was another American, Arthur Pomeroy, who had been involved in skating from the 1880s. In June 1909, the New York Times reported that Crawford had secured sites in Berlin, Vienna, Hanover, Dresden, Budapest, Munich and St. Petersburg and was about to start negotiations in Paris. Now, part of the story of these Americans is told in the papers here at the National Archives of the London Olympia 1909 Skating Rink Company Limited. Now, this was set up to run skating at London Olympia from the 1st of December 1909 to the 24th of February 1910. The share prospectus made it clear that both Crawford and Wilkins were in partnership as the American Roller Rink Company. 
they would manage the operation at Olympia and receive shares and a joint salary of £20 a week. As owner of the American floor surfacing machine, Crawford would also be paid for its use at two pence per square foot. The skates to be used would be those of the Samuel Winslow Skate Manufacturing Company in the US. Crawford would take a half share in any profits made by Winslow from skating rinks in the UK. Having achieved its purpose at Olympia, company wound up in March 1910 and was finally dissolved in November 1911. Winslow's working life started in the cotton industry. In 1855 he and his brother Seth established a machine shop and from 1857 they began to manufacture skates. In 1886 the business was incorporated as the Samuel Winslow Skate Manufacturing Company. But the American presence is more significant than just Crawford and Wilkins and the individual skaters. An important sports promoter was the American company A.G. Spaulding and Brothers. In 1907, its factory running between Deodar Road down to the Thames at Putney Wharf was described as extensive. Its library provided guides and annuals on cricket, football, baseball, lawn tennis, golf, hockey, basketball, athletics, manly sports, and physical culture. It made roller skates, tennis equipment, including balls and rackets, and golf balls and gloves. Albert Goodwill Spaulding had been a baseball player. The Putney factory was still operating through to about 1961 when it moved to Ireland, and the firm still exists today in the United States. Now, the range of people who became shareholders and directors was broad and suggests that individuals had many interests, allowing them to try and exploit new opportunities to make money. The promoter of the Brixton skating rink at its formation in March 1909 was Percy Morgan. He had been a cycle manufacturer in Birmingham and London, then set up the Standard Tire Company in 1894, which merged with others into the Amalgamated Tire Companies Limited. He pulled out of that in 1901, became a stockbroker, and from September 1908, a company promoter trading as Walter Southwell Young & Co. A co-director was the merchant Carlton Roberts. Initial shareholders included several article clerks. After the Brixton Rink was built, Skating Rinks Limited was appointed as manager, and that was a company which managed other Morgan-initiated rinks. The directors of Camberwell Skating Rink Limited, which was registered in November 1909, also included Carlton Roberts. And the directors of the Beehive Billiard and Skating Hall, set up to take over a hall in Haywood in Lancashire, included engineers, journalists, a billiard hall manager, and a licensed victualler. Now, a range of companies look to do business with rink owners, and some of their details are here at the National Archives. No rink could operate properly without a music and dance license from the relevant local authorities like the London and Surrey County Councils. The November 1909 meeting of the LCC Theatre and Music Halls Committee considered applications for 22 rinks. It's in nearby Kingston that the beginnings of a legal tussle seem to have begun and the story can be told because of the files here at the National Archives. 
Subdivisional Inspector William Bryce noted that in October 1909, Surrey County Council had refused the Kingston and District Skating Rink and Picture Palace a music and dancing license because the notices had not been complied with. Despite this, the rink had been operating with skating and music three times a day. The rink manager, Charles Bing Hall, one of the founders of the magazine The World on Wheels, had problems with his request for an extension of one hour to midnight on the 10th of November 1909 for a fancy dress carnival, which was refused. He had stressed to the police that the rink was under the strictest discipline and principles, and everything and everyone would be conducted on the most high propriety. The police file notes that there were to be 300 competitors and 300 spectators. Prizes would be awarded by General Sir Henry Tuxon. Inspector Bryce favoured granting the extension, but his superintendent considered it would be a bad precedent, as the whole project is promoted by the proprietor for his own benefit and to advertise his business, which is a new venture in Kingston, and such applications will no doubt be repeated. If it had been an outside hire, he would have had no objection. The rink was very busy in the second half of December. By the end of January, Bryce noted that 10 complaints had been received by the police about the way the premises were conducted. As there was no reason to doubt that it was carried on in a respectable manner, it would appear, he thought, that the premises are defined as disorderly owing to the fact of it being unlicensed. In February, the necessary paperwork having been prepared by the Surrey County Council clerk, a notice was served on Inspector Bryce under the Disorderly Houses Act 1751, signed by two residents requiring him to prosecute Hall. An initial hearing by the magistrates referred the matter to the Court of Sessions, binding both Hall and Bryce over Inspector Bryce to ensure that he actually turned up to prosecute Hall. The matter then went to Scotland Yard to instruct lawyers. The Yard denied the act applied because it provided for action by a vestry parish constable, a post that no longer existed. Advice was taken from the Home Office which supplied details of an 1888 Law Lords decision that a police officer could act in place of the now non-existent posts of parish constables. Hall was duly prosecuted. During the hearing in April, the two residents made it clear to Bing Hall's barrister that they only really objected to was the noise of the rink band playing on Sundays. Requesting a fine to be imposed, the barrister said that Hall was ready to undertake not to play music on Sunday, to apply for licence at the earliest possible moment, and in the meantime to carry on the rink in a proper manner. The bench agreed on a fine as the justices were not happy with the breach of licensing and awarded costs against Hall. Now the costs hadn't been paid by August. Bing Hall explained in a letter that the rink company and the directors would have no money to pay the costs until the rink reopened in October. He was no longer managing director and had himself lost heavily in the last year on four other provincial rinks and one French one and himself had no money. As the costs had still not been paid by January 1911, the police solicitor suggested to Scotland Yard that Kingston Vestry were liable to pay the police the reasonable expense of the prosecution. 
the vestry challenged this on the ground that the proceedings were irregular and that a Metropolitan Police Inspector was not a parish constable within the meaning of the Act. After the Home Office had supplied details of the 1888 uh, legal decision, the vestry agreed to pay the police share of the costs. Now, this was not just the storm in a teacup. Companies all over the country were experiencing problems. Neighbours of the Brixton rink, for example, had taken out an injunction because of the noise of the skates on the floor, the band, the shouts of applause, and the firing of a pistol at the beginning of races. The judge later found for them, but gave time for the company to find solutions. Now, because of problems like this in February 1910, the Rink Owners Association sought to take action. Its slogan was, Unity is strength, our profession of faith. Its members sought to combine and coalesce because the overt and covert forces of opposition to the legitimate conduct of rinking enterprise should not be underestimated. It applied to the Home Secretary for permission to register as a limited company without using the name limited in its title. It rashly requested the matter to deal with be dealt with urgently because one of the main objects of the association is for skating rink owners to render one another mutual assistance forthwith for the purpose of testing the validity of a legal decision affecting them with reference to music and dancing licenses. In his note on the Home Office file here at National Archives, the civil servant, Sir H. Llewellyn Smith, said that given that one of the objects appears to me clearly to be the combination for the purpose of gain, for the testing of the decision must be one of the ordinary expenses of business among rink owners, I think therefore the application should be refused. Directors of the association were involved in rinks in Bedford, Oxford, the Porchester Hall in Bayswater, Tottenham, Ealing, Penzance, along with William Frederick Forsyth of the Kingston Rink, and E.W. Phillips, manager of the rink department of Keith Prowse and Company. Now, music was an important accompaniment to skating. Special music was composed for rinking. Now We're Off was a novelty skate dance by Herbert Bentley and Harry Wood. A special song was composed to the tune of Cellar Cool called The Complete Rinker. Some rink managements employed their own musicians or contracted existing bands like the London Victoria Bijou Military and the Royal Blue Austrian and Mario Band Orchestra. A number of specialist companies advertised automatic orchestras on the grounds they were cheaper than hiring live musicians. Prowse had set up its own automatic orchestra's branch in 1902. Its advertisement stated, Why pay a band and lose your money? Pay us half the cost of a band monthly and the instrument is yours. Is this not business? The danger skating in the streets was not the only cause of concern about the activity. Many local uh, papers carried detailed reports on activities of uh, local rinks and commentaries on them. There was much public debate about the morality of skating. The reasons clearly illustrated by these last two postcards of the time, alluding to its romantic and sexual possibilities. One example of a romantic liaison was between Percival Powell, working under Albert Bridge at the Erdington Rink, and a local typist, Dorothy Margaret Barden, whose mother was a shareholder. 
Percy was an active competitor in the NSA events. In October 1909, Dorothy won the prize for the most handsome ladies' costume at the Grand Fancy Dress Carnival in aid of the Birmingham Crimea and Indian Mutiny Veterans Fund with her costume, Daughter of the Regiment. They married in and soon afterwards uh, moved to Bournemouth where Percy had obtained the job of floor manager at the Westover skating rink that was under construction. There was also a lot of public debate about whether it was damaging other leisure and sports activities. In January 1910, for example, Streatham News noted the winter dancing season, favoured by the middle classes, was suffering somewhat from the counter-attraction of roller skating. In London, it has become the fashion for well-to-do folk to have one or other of the smaller rinks for the afternoon and invite their friends to their private rinking meetings. Uh, there are lots of postcards also poking fun at, at, at skating. The rink development boom seems to have peaked in 1910. That year begins to see a shakeout in the rinking industry with company collapses and takeovers and moves to diversify, if only to prevent complete closure of the buildings during the summer. The Erdington Company took over the LaSalle's rink in February 1910 and that summer it diversified Erdington with a Piero and Picture Theatre for the summer and it modernised the LaSalle's rink for the next season. The popular interest then began to wane from 1911. A number of reasons have been put forward, including the collapse of several promoters, the resignation of Crawford and Wilkins from 16 companies, the failure of rinks to develop summertime uses for their buildings, the development of cinemas, economic recession, cuts in wages and strike waves, and the specialist magazines had all closed by the end of 1911. Many companies went bust and others shut their doors and the buildings were converted into other uses, including as picture houses like the Sydenham one here in 1911. Following petitioning by its creditors in the High Court, a liquidator was appointed for Willard's Rinking Limited in December 1910. The company was finally dissolved by court order in November 1913. South London Skating Rink Limited was an early casualty being voluntarily wound up in November and Hammersmith Rink in December 1910, both of which had been shared, chaired by the merchant Carlton Roberts. The Brixton Company was wound up in February 1911, but the rink was taken over by a new company, Brixton Roller Rink Limited. Known as the Tin Tabernacle, it continued until 1928 when a new building was erected and it celebrated its 27th anniversary in 1937. Now, because skating was only one of their main activities, Alexandra and Crystal Palaces continued as leading venues until they were taken over by the government for wartime use. The Alexandra restarted skating after the war, providing a skating facility through the booms and slumps from the 1920s to the 1960s. And there were many people active before the First World War who continued to be so afterwards, including Buckhurst of St George's and Central Halls in Wandsworth, A.R. Eglinton, a champion racer who went to the United States in the 1930s to run Skateland in New York, S.B. Cole, another speedster champion who was honorary manager of Alexandra Palace and secretary of its skating club in the 1930s. William Stanton, who had started skating 
as a boy in 1890, won many competitions between 1908 and 1914, and was head of the NSA roller skating department and director of the journal The World of Wheels, judged events in the 1930s. And two players with the Goyes hockey team at Porchester Hall in the Edwardian boom became officers of the National Roller Rink Hockey Association until 1940. L lastly, having learnt to skate in 1908 in Muggs Alley at the Wandsworth Central Hall rink, R.W. Marsh competed in roller football, <coughs> rink hockey and speed racing. In May 1916, serving in France, a head suddenly appeared from a dugout in a frontline trench and a voice asked, What's the Wandsworth Club doing here? It was Cox of Catford Club. In Italy, after recovering from wounds at the Somme, he met May of Ilford and Thompson of Aldridge Clubs, and in 1918, Branson of Brixton Club at a divisional soccer match. After the war, there were fewer clubs. Living in Battersea, March joined, Marsh joined the Aldridge, becoming its secretary in 1920, joining the NSA Roller Committee in 1921, becoming its secretary and treasurer. And there was a new generation of enthusiasts, like Streatham's Benny and Harry Lee, who represented England at international roller speed events, and Laurie Bright, a leading exponent of roller dance and figure roller skating. And here we have Benny Lee uh, on skates going to do a speed competition with Gus Kuhn on a motorcycle. Finally, it's particularly here at the National Archives that enable investigation of many of the business aspects and to a lesser extent some of the social and political issues involved in a leisure activity such as roller skating. Much flesh can then be added from local and rinking press at the newspaper library at Collindale and from the records of local authorities around the country. Thanks very much. This podcast was recorded live on the 21st of June 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>